Let's just say that when Ahab and Jezebel found out what happened to all of their prophets as a result of the story from last week, they were not pleased. For those of you who remember the story from last Sunday about the fiery face-off on top of Mount Carmel, you know what happened. It was Elijah up against 900 servants of Ahab and Jezebel, and God showed up in that moment, rained down fire on the altar, declaring Elijah and Yahweh the winner, and then Elijah then went after all 900 servants as they tried to escape, but not a single one of them did. And it was here that we found out something about Ahab and Jezebel, that they are very sore losers. And if there's anything we come to know about Ahab, it is that an angry Ahab makes for a very evil and wicked Ahab. Because what happened is that Ahab told Jezebel what happened, and Jezebel then ordered a death sentence over Elijah's head. And so now with a death threat over his head, Elijah did what any sensible, rational, clear-thinking person like us would do. He ran screaming like a baby into the wilderness. And that is where Elijah hit rock bottom. Out there in the scorching heat and the blazing sun, out there suffering from the elements, he became hungry and weak and fatigued. All of this simply to be pursued to pursue obedience to God's call in his life, and all it had gotten him was here at the bottom of the barrel. And it was there that Elijah said something that is among the most poignant and relevant words for you and I this morning. You know, we've come to learn a lot about Elijah through his stories, but perhaps it is what he said here in this moment that makes him the most approachable, the most personal, the most relevant for your experience and mine today. Because it is in this moment that Elijah said, it is more than enough. Lord, take my life, for I am no better than my ancestors. It's more than enough. And maybe there's a part of many of us, if not most of us this morning, that would say those exact same words as we scan the occurrences of the world and the culture around us, as we pick up the headlines, as we read them on the internet and in our newspapers, we simply come to the very same conclusion. It is more than enough. How much more violence can we read about, O oh Lord? How much, how much more gun massacres can we take? When violence seems to be rising and peace seems to be fleeting and darkness seems to be creeping in and light is nowhere to be found, it is more than enough. In a political culture where our political machines seem to be tearing us further apart rather than lifting us up, it is more than enough, Lord. And that's just the stuff that is going on around us. The moment we start taking inventory of our spirit, we discover even more reasons to feel down and dejected and desperate. 
As you and I come to terms with the daily barrage of things that we have to do, all of the responsibilities that we have to juggle, all of the hats that we have to wear, only to discover that not a single one of them fits, it is more than enough. And then as we go even deeper into our lives, we discover the doubt and the disbelief that creeps into our spirit as we somehow learn to reconcile our intellect and our reason over and against the complexities and mysteries of the Christian faith and cannot find a way for those two to coincide. It is more than enough. And all that it creates is this season of wilderness, a period of spiritual drought, We find ourselves just like Elijah underneath a broom tree saying it's more than enough. You know, at the very least, Elijah was wanting God to show up in a surprising way because Elijah just needed some new infusion, some new spark of the Spirit to enter his life to surprise him and give him, at the very least, something amazing to lift him out of his desperate situation. I'm reminded of my very favorite Disney Pixar movie, The Incredibles, where the main character, a man named Bob Parr, who is in fact Mr. Incredible, the great superhero, has now been forced into hiding with the rest of his family and all other superheroes because the world has decided that being a superhero is illegal. So Bob Parr has now suppressed all of his superhuman strength to take on the role of, if you can believe it, an insurance agent. No offense to any insurance agents in the congregation this morning, But Bob was miserable. Day after day in a boring dead-end job, sitting there behind his desk in a cubicle, he was the lowest of the low. Day after day, week after week, feeling miserable. One day he came home, and as he was pulling up into his driveway, he found a neighborhood boy sitting there, staring at Bob as he was getting out of the car. Bob and this little boy locked gazes with each other. Finally, Bob said to the boy, what are you staring at? And that little boy, somehow, knowing that Bob Parr was in fact a superhero, said to Bob, I am waiting for something amazing to happen. And that's the line. That's the line that pretty much summarizes Elijah in this moment under the broom tree and captures the spirit of any of us here who are living in the wilderness and going through a period of spiritual drought. God, we just want you to show up and do something amazing. Well, eventually God hears the prayer And as the story goes, God sends an angel to care for Elijah, gives him food to sustain his soul and his his body, and then gives him a mission. says, Elijah, I want you to go up on top of the mountain because the Lord is about to pass by. And what great words that must have been for Elijah. 
Elijah, get up, go on top of that mountain because God is going to show up. And Elijah must have been thinking, of course God's going to show up because it's a mountain. And if there's any place that we have ever learned that God always shows up, it's on top of a mountain. Because after all, Moses, the great liberator of the Israelite people, saw God face to face on top of a mountain, Mount Sinai. And the Israelites experienced God when God gave them the Ten Commandments on top of a mountain. And of course it would be a mountain. Jesus himself preached his greatest sermon that he ever preached on top of a mountain. Jesus prayed for his life on top of a mountain the night before he died. He even died on a cross on top of a hill. In fact, God's name, one of God's many names is El Shaddai which literally means God of the mountain. If there was any place where God was going to show up, it would have to be on top of a mountain, right? Except here is what Elijah is about to learn, that God doesn't always show up the way God has shown up before. Elijah does go up on top of the mountain, and instead of having a face-to-face encounter with God the way Moses did, or being able to pray directly to God the way Jesus did, Elijah finds himself in, of all places, a cave. A cave. That's the last place you expect to find God. People who study ancient mythology know that if you're trying to find the divine, if you're trying to find God, the last place you want to be is in a cave. Because in a cave, you see nothing but darkness. You feel nothing but confinement and concealment. There is nothing there but death. God's not in a cave. That's why David fled into a cave when he was trying to escape the wrath of King Saul. That's why Jonah found himself in a sort of cave in the belly of a fish when he was trying to escape God. That's why Jesus was laid in a tomb, a cave, an unused tomb after he died on the cross. A cave is not where you expect to find God. You only expect to find darkness and despair and isolation and fatigue, maybe even death itself. That's where Elijah found himself. The truth of the matter is that may be a pretty apt description for how you would describe your own situation this morning. Not a mountaintop experience at all. Maybe you would rather characterize your life in this very moment as being trapped in a cave. But you know what Elijah realizes? The lesson here is that sometimes the cave can be a blessing. That maybe a cave can be like a womb. A place that you have to enter into a place of intense suffering and grief and despair where the walls of that cave confine you only to discover that when you emerge from that cave, you can be reborn. You can experience new light and transformative possibility. 
That's part of the lesson of this story for us, is that the cave can in fact be a surprising place to experience God. So, does Elijah meet God in the cave? Sort of. The very first thing that Elijah experiences in the cave is a great, strong, and mighty wind. And you would think that if there's any image in which God would show up and be revealed to Elijah, it would have to be in the wind, right? I mean, that's the very first thing we learn about God in the entire Bible. That in the book of Genesis, in the midst of all chaos, God is hovering over the waters as a great wind, as the Spirit. And then when God chooses to create human beings out of lifeless clay, it is the wind of God, it is the breath of God that animates all of us into life. And that when the Israelites are wandering in the wilderness, carrying their tabernacle, when they choose to stop and create that temporary temple for God, it is the wind, it is the cloud that resides in the tabernacle to show, to show the people that God is here with them. And when the church is born at the moment of Pentecost, what is it that the Spirit gives to them? A strong wind to remind them that God is doing a new thing. If there is any image that God would choose to tell Elijah that God is there, it would have to be the wind, right? Except God was not in the wind because God is not always revealed in the ways that God has been known before. Strike one. The next thing that Elijah experiences is an earthquake. Of course God would be in the earthquake, right? I mean, this God who created the universe, who fashioned planets, who set stars into motion, who created all things into being, surely this God would have the power to shake the earth at its foundations. I mean, after all, it was an earthquake that occurred at the moment when Jesus died and the temple was shaken. It was an earthquake that shook the prison bars that concealed Paul and Silas and broke them into freedom. If there ever was an image where God could be revealed to Elijah, it would have to be an earthquake, right? Except God was not in the earthquake either because God does not always show up in the ways that God has shown up before. Strike two. And then Elijah experienced fire. And of course God would have to be in the fire, right? I mean, after all, it was a pillar of fire that led the Israelites from Egypt into the promised land by guiding them through the night. It was a fire that showed up at Pentecost as the early disciples experienced the Spirit descending upon them as tongues of flame when the church was born. I mean, after all, Elijah had just seen God in the fire the previous chapter in the prior story on Mount Carmel when God had rained fire down upon the altar to declare him victorious. If there ever was an image in which God could always be reliably found, it would have to be in the fire. 
except God was not in the fire either. Because God does not always show up in the ways that God has shown up before. Now put yourself in Elijah's shoes. I don't think it would be hard because my suspicion is that many of us know exactly what Elijah must have been thinking. Where we have come to expect God in certain places and in certain times when we go through certain motions only to discover that God seems to be absent. And we say to ourselves and we pray out loud, God, where are you? I've, I've done everything that I know how to do, yet you are still absent from my life. I have prayed the same prayers that I have prayed all my life when you have shown up before. Why aren't you here? I have gone back to that same personal collection of favorite scriptures that have always given me strength in the past, yet you are not here now. Oh God, I have gone to the same places, done the same things at the same times that you have shown up in the past. Where are you? And it was then that Elijah realized that God is bigger than our preconceived notions. And God is freer than our formulaic theologies. You see, God, in fact, is not a genie in a bottle that can be conjured at whim when we rub the lamp the right way. God is not so small and portable that we can stick God into our pocket like a lucky rabbit's foot to pull out only when needed. And so as much as it is valuable to have formulaic prayers and formulaic actions, the moment we think that we can conjure up God to speak to us when we need it with a message that we need to hear is the very moment that we try to become god over God. And Elijah had to learn that that's not who God is at all. The very moment that Elijah was able to clear all of the preconceived notions of how God has acted in the past, the moment that Elijah was able to dispel all of the formulaic activities that had conjured up God before was the very moment that he realized that God had been speaking to him the entire time. He just needed to learn how to listen. Because it was at that moment that Elijah could hear it. He could hear that voice, a voice that was still and small, a voice that was thin and quiet, a whisper probably no louder than the beat of his own heart. The moment Elijah could learn to quiet all other voices but that of God's, he could hear it, the message that God wanted to tell him this entire time. Elijah, 
you're not alone after all. You might think you are, but there are actually thousands of you who have not yet disobeyed me. You are not alone. And I also have a purpose for you, Elijah. Go find Elisha, your successor, because he will carry the torch from now on. I suspect that Elijah would never have heard that message if he had fixated on the wind or the fire or the earthquake. And I suspect that for most of us, there's a very good chance that the reason we can't hear that voice that belongs to God is that we are allowing ourselves to be drowned by the cacophony of voices that clamor for our attention. And if we could simply learn to silence all voices but the voice of God, we might too learn that God will show up in ways that we aren't expecting to give us a message that we didn't know we needed to hear. So we're going to close this sermon with a time of practicing that very kind of silence. A moment of silence, probably no longer than 60 seconds. But to those of us who are not used to silence, it will feel like an eternity. In this 60 seconds, it is very likely that your thoughts will wander, the other voices will start clamoring for your attention, and you will become distracted even by the noises in this sanctuary. In that moment, I invite you to find a word to recenter yourself. It might be a biblical word like Maranatha or Abba, or it could simply be a word like peace or Jesus or Lord. In this moment of silence, I invite you to listen for the voice of God and, and then invite you to practice this silence in your daily living. It is the kind of silence, by the way, that is going to be a hallmark feature of the new worship service at the Portico downtown. And so anytime they gather together, there will be this practice of silence, and that might be a draw for you to come and join them. But at the very least... Silence all voices but that which belongs to God and allow God to be free to speak to you in unexpected ways. Let us pray together. Oh God, here we are in the midst of this cave, having now been challenged to dispel all of our preconceived notions of how you act and what you say. We thank you for the message that you long to bring to us, that we are not alone, and we have a task on earth. Oh God, in this moment of silence, help us to quiet other voices and to hear the message that you have to give us. Stabilize us, recenter us, and unstop our ears, for we are very deaf. O oh Lord, speak to us. We are listening.
in the name of our Creator, Redeemer, and Sustainer. Amen.